Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, joined by my co-host, Rob Dunham. Hey, everybody. Well, we have an excellent show for you. We are going to talk about the box office. We will talk about Rob's 100% accurate prediction from this weekend. Uh, We have a big list of movies opening in theaters. We'll take a deeper look at some of the updates uh, with regard to DC Studios. And we will discuss little appreciated aspects of movies, things that you may miss if you're not paying attention to them when you're watching a movie. And, of course, our watch list. All right, Rob, you ready to get started? I am. Box office is dominated by The Rock. Yes, that is right. Yeah. (laughs) Not that. Black Adam takes number one at the box office uh, with $67 Dwayne Johnson, of course, starring in this DC feature. Uh, Last week, if you listened to last week's podcast, which you totally should have, Mm -hmm. uh, Rob gave a prediction as to what Black Adam would make. And he predicted between 65 and 70 million. It made 67 million. Rob wins. (laughs) Between 65 and 70. Yeah, which is... Pretty much right dead on. Uh, Yeah, so Black Adam takes number one in the box office. Ticket to Paradise, the romantic comedy between with um, George Clooney and Julia Roberts, uh, came in second at $16.5 million in its first week in the box office. Number third is Smile at $8.5 million. Halloween ends at $8 million. It, that one has crossed the $50 million barrier. And Lyle Lyle Crocodile rounds out the top five at four point three million. Rob, what do you make of the box office results? So the thing that's most impressive to me is not Black Adam. It's the fact that Smile, um, if you look at the worldwide box office, it has a budget of seventeen million dollars mm-hmm. and it is a hundred and seventy million dollars. Yes, worldwide and that includes eighty almost eighty five million domestic. Yeah, which is even just the eighty-five million domestic would be an yeah. insane four times the budget of the movie. Yeah, but the fact that it's literally made ten times this budget when you count um, overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, usually you expect horror movies to do pretty good, but this one has um, exceeded even that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's done really, really well. I. You know, obviously the viral marketing campaign brought it some attention domestically, but that would not have really affected the international box office. Uh, I have no idea what kind of marketing they did internationally, but they certainly did some interesting stuff domestically. Uh, but whatever they're doing, it, it worked. And yeah, I don't think you haven't seen this one either, right? I've not seen it yet, no. Okay. Yeah, so I'm not sure how much this has to do with the quality of the movie itself versus... Um, just it's Halloween and people want to go see a horror movie and that's the one they chose. But either way, it's done really, really well. Uh, I am somewhat impressed with Lyle Lyle Crocodile, a movie I literally know nothing about. I know it's, you know, I know it's for kids, but, you know, I haven't seen a single advertisement for it. And it's, you know, been in the top five for three straight weeks. So, hey, that's something. My favorite part is when he asked the crocodile um, how much he ever lost in the coin flip. Oh, wait, that's a different movie. <laughs> it's an entirely different movie. 
Ah, uh, yes. Um, and also, um, I think the Ticket to Paradise is pretty much exactly where I would have expected it, uh, which is a pretty solid take for a romantic comedy, um, especially starring two well-known, but, uh, you know, getting up there actors. So that one definitely has a, an older audience appeal to it, uh, but it did pretty well. And so I think they were probably pleased with the results there. Uh, any other comments on the box office for the past weekend? Um, I mean, Black Adam, you know, I think is fairly impressive. And given the news that we just got about DC that we'll talk about a bit later yeah. in the podcast, there's some good vibes, it seems like, around DC right now, which we have not been able to say for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not a slam dunk. But it's, I mean, it's a solid result and DC needs some solid results. And obviously there was enough of a market to go see it. So we'll see. Um, yeah. Now um, we'll move on to what's coming out this weekend. And there's one that I don't have on the list that I know you wanted to talk about. And I do too. So we can mention that and bring that up too. Uh, but we'll start out with the what's in the box office. And uh, we have four movies of note coming out. Uh, one is Pray for the Devil, P-R-E-Y, as if you didn't guess that based on that title. Uh, the second one is called Jane. Third one is Till. And the last one is Tar. So Pray for the Devil um, is a nun prepares to perform an exorcism and comes face to face with a demonic force with mysterious ties to her past. And this is Jacqueline Byers, uh, Virginia Madsen, uh, Colin Salmon. Uh, star in this one. Uh, it's another horror movie entrance. And next we have Call Jane. And this stars Elizabeth Banks and Sigourney Weaver, Chris Messina. And it's a married woman with an unwanted pregnancy lives in a time in America where she can't get a legal abortion and helps with a group of works with a group of suburban women to find help. Um, next, we have the movie Till. And this stars uh, Danielle Deadweiler, Jalen Hall, Frankie Faison, Haley Bennett. And in 1955, after Emmett Till is murdered in a brutal lynching, his mother vows to expose the racism behind the attack while working to have those involved brought to justice. And the last movie on the list for the box office is Tar. And I'm not sure if that's pronounced a slightly different way. There's an accent over the A there, but I'm telling it as Tar. Uh, Kate Blanchett. Uh, Naomi Merlant, Nina Haas. And this is set in the international world of Western classical music. The film centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered one of the greatest living composer conductors and the first ever female music director of a major German orchestra. So you can get a lot of classical music in this one. Mm -hmm. So Rob, you have four potential entrance into the box office pick your film fair so i would if i would choose to go to one which i'm not sure i will um yeah. 
I think the movie about Emmett Till is the most interesting to me because mm-hmm. I've read um, a lot about that story and previously in books and magazines and um, obviously studied it in, in history class. Mm-hmm. Um, very powerful moment. They just released, they just unveiled a statue of him in the town where he was lynched. Um, so it's a very um, appropriate movie time-wise um, to be coming out. And um, obviously with everything going on in our world, it seems like that's always going to be appropriate, unfortunately, because people are dumb. <laughs> um, but hopefully it's uh, helpful for some people to see uh, what happened there. I mean, Pray, Pray for the Devil also intrigues me. The trailers made it look quite creepy. Um, I think any anytime I probably the movies I'm most creeped out by, if you want to say that, are um, like spiritual, supernatural mm-hmm. kind of movies. Um, so this would definitely fall into that category, um, along along the lines of like The Exorcist, mm-hmm. um, maybe The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is probably my favorite in that kind of subgenre. Um, of horror. So there are a couple I'm interested in. The one I'm most interested in is actually not in the box office. <laughs> yes. Which we will get to in a moment. Yes. Um, for me, it would probably be Tar. Um, I do like classical music. Um, now, I have no idea who this person is, this director. Um, so if it's just like, hey, it's a life story about her, you know, whatever, you know. But if it ha- if it includes, which I'm assuming it would, a significant amount of classical music involved, then I might find that interesting. Um, I go, I'll be honest and say that I go back and forth on movies like Till. I do think it's very important to understand the history, and to, um, for those stories to to be told, for sure. Um, I do think sometimes there is. There is a function of overdwelling on on the past on some of this stuff um, to the detriment of of the present. Uh, I do think that's possible. Now, I'm not saying that this movie is responsible for that or or as anything. It's just a general general thought on that that I do think sometimes we dwell so much on that that we we can forget the progress we've made, even though it's not perfect mm-hmm. on those areas. Um, so I go back and forth on that, but it certainly is it certainly is a a key historical moment that deserves its uh, that deserves its mention and deserves to be told. So I have no problem with it from that standpoint. Um, now let's get on to the one that we probably both uh, are most interested in. Rob, go ahead and take the lead on this one. So All Quiet on the Western Front is a Netflix release. Um, there are two other versions of this movie. One came out in uh, the 1930s, I want to say. I'll look it up. Very, It's very old. <laughs> and it's actually my favorite version of the movie, <laughs> believe it or not. 1930, um, exactly. Okay. 1930. And, and then the second one, do you have the date there for that one? Um, I have um, a TV movie from 1979. Yep, yep. yep. So those are the two versions. Um, of the movie that came out. Um, obviously, the 1931 is black and white, mm-hmm. unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a very... I'm, I'm very intrigued by seeing an updated version of this because um, 
the reason why I like the 1931 so much and the reason um, the reason why I have given it's I would say it's a movie that has actually made me pay attention to older movies mm-hmm. um, and to give some more of them a chance because it's such a good story. Yeah. Um, a moving, emotional, realistic story about kids basically being thrown into the front lines of this war, mm-hmm. uh, having no idea what they're getting into. Yeah. At all. And just seeing the it's absolutely it's brutal um, emotionally. I wouldn't say it's brutal, like um, it's not gory mm-hmm. in that, but um, it's definitely a very emotionally weighty story. And so I'm interested in seeing another take on that. Yeah. Um, a little more modernized, updated uh, visually. Yeah. Yeah, it will be really interesting. Um, the, did you read the book? I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. it's a regular in the school curriculum, or at least it used to be. Um, I remember uh, reading it. I spent like an entire day reading it because it was due the next, like it was due on a Monday and I hadn't done any of it. So I spent like literally all day Saturday reading this book. Uh, But it's interesting enough, it came out in 1929 and then they made a movie about it in 1930. (laughs) So there was a real quick turnaround on this. It, it obviously took off right away. Um, But yeah, it's, it is, it's a really powerful story about world war one. And it really does give you a sense of what world war one was like um, from a literary perspective, something I think 1917 did a fantastic job of in the cinematic realm. Uh, in ways that we hadn't seen before. Uh, So it is interesting to see what Netflix is going to do with this particular story. Um, It's a little bit, the story itself is, is, is down to earth and really human. Like you really relate to the characters. You can, you, you feel what they're going through. Um, So it will be interesting to see if that translates uh, into uh, the Netflix version. yeah. One thing I always loved about the story too is if you think about it, it's really like a time capsule kind of movie because mm-hmm. it's after the First World War, which yeah. at that point they had thought was the war to end all wars. It's yeah. before World War Two, so the story itself is set in a very interesting time when mm-hmm. they didn't. It's going to happen in a decade. Yeah, and World well, War Two has really overshadowed World War One. Um, it garners so much more attention. Uh, than what we pay to World War Two or World War One, and yeah, it was. It's the World War One is. If you know anything about the history of World War One, it really is just unbelievable in terms of how everything went down. And the old saying that the next war is always fought with the tactics that won the previous war, not adjusting for technology. World War One is the number one example of that. It really is. It's uh, yeah. It's a dev. It was a devastating war. Mm-hmm. So yeah, really looking forward to all quiet on the Western Front. And that is out. What today, right? Yes. Yeah. So as you listen to this, it is out. Go watch it on Netflix. Uh, anything else to say about that one? Uh, I don't believe so. I think it actually. If I. I think it might release on the 30th. So it might be, oh, um, right. I thought it was, yeah, it might be Sunday that it comes out. I think. All right. Let me, I will look that up uh, to make sure to see where we're, whether it's out yet. Yeah. It comes out this weekend. I know that. <laughs> yes. It does come out this weekend for sure. All right. All quiet on the Western front. It's available to play. 
Okay. All right. So it looks like it's out now. Uh, so it is available. Uh, so go watch it on Netflix. Um, now we'll move on to our dis- uh, well tomorrow uh, some news updates and we we get a bunch of stories that came out um, in their last week or two about DC and uh, the reorganized DC studios and um, so we're gonna do uh, a couple of stories from that a couple of the headliners that grab you um, and the first one is. James Gunn is taking over creative direction as co-CEO of DC Studios. And so Warner Brothers has placed James Gunn in the leadership role. And uh, basically the new Warner Brothers brain trust has asked him to give creative direction to 10 years worth of movies. And um, this is something that DC has sorely needed a steady creative direction and so um it will be interesting to see the the other co-ceo there is uh peter saffron basically james gunn will handle the creative side peter saffron will handle the business side uh is how this is going to work um but basically these guys are have been hired to bring the stability and the creative direction that dc has sorely lacked for a very long time uh, Rob, what do you make of James Gunn? What do you think of the hire of James Gunn to do this and um, and the plan for DC going forward? So for those who don't know, there was a lot of controversy around um, James Gunn with Marvel. He was actually let go. Yes. And then um, there was like an outcry from the talent around him. And it looked like they might have been a little um, too quick to do that based on some rumors of things and allegations that didn't really pan out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's he's certainly well-respected and traveled in the superhero genre. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy, James Gunn. Yes. Um, I What I found really cool about this, reading some of the article and some news around it, how do you pronounce Marvel guy's name, last name? Do you know? Is it Fag or phage or something i've never heard it pronounced i've only seen it written i'm gonna go ahead and go with fag because i don't know better um (laughs) but he said that so for those who don't know who i'm talking about kevin fag is the um basically marvel version of what james gunn is going to be for dc Um, you'll see his name in like every single Mm -hmm. marvel movie as a producer he's kind of like the the brains behind the operation if you want to call it that um, along probably with uh, John Favreau would be um, the other main one, I would say, when it comes to Marvel stuff. Um, but he said, uh, James Gunn said that one of the first things he did was get in touch with Kevin um, and talk to him about it because he said that he doesn't view Marvel and DC as being in like a war against each other, mm-hmm. that they're trying to build these universes to engage with um an audience that there's enough of an audience for all of it yeah uh, and i i really do believe if they're done well there is enough of an audience for both of it so um very the the biggest thing obviously which you had mentioned is having some kind of cohesive direction yeah things and he's certainly uh proven that he is capable of that mm-hmm. um ask yeah and the question is I view DC a lot like you do a struggling 
a long time struggling football team where they're constantly cycling through. Like they'll have a coach for a year or two, fire him. The next guy will come in, they'll fire them. Then they'll fire the GM and then they'll, you know, they'll have a quarterback. He'll stink. They'll hire another quarterback. They'll stink. And you just get into this repetitive cycle where it's just constantly churning over new people and new people, and new people. And it never feels like you get anything going. That's really what DC has felt like. This right here is an opportunity for them to correct it, but they're going to have to stick the course. They're going to have to stay the course and let this vision play out for good or for bad. They're going to have to let it play out. Otherwise, they're just going to get stuck in this repeating cycle of having to relaunch and rehash and refigure everything out. Um, I liked I like when they were talking about superhero tone management. I'll link to the article in the, in the show notes. Um, but they're saying one of the things that has to happen is tone management with your superhero movies. And they even reference the fact that Marvel has been struggling with this in Phase Four. Um, and and so they they really like the the fact that Gunn seems to be an excellent person at managing exactly that of getting the tone right, especially when it comes to humor. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy is the perfect um, franchise where you can talk about that. The humor was balanced perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think it's. I think overall, I just think they needed to go this direction. Um, and we can talk about in a later story, I'll come back to, um, one of the ways I think it might go wrong if it goes wrong, how it will go wrong. And, uh, we'll come back to that in the third, the third story here, but, um, you got anything else from James Gunn? Uh, no. Okay. The next up is the announcement. And if you did see black Adam, you will have seen a, a slight preview of this, but, Henry Cavill announced his return as Superman. Henry Cavill will be back. Um, that was not a guarantee up until very recently, but he officially announced within the last week that he's back as Superman. And he uh, he he made a po- mid credit cameo in Black Adam, apparently, and. Um, he says there's a lot more in the works when it comes to Superman. Uh, there's a Superman sequel in developed that's, uh, that's being developed. And so um, apparently Dwayne Johnson's really been playing up the possibility of Black Adam versus Superman. Um, I immediately get bad Batman versus Superman flashbacks, but <laughs> um, who knows? We'll see. Um but I like I like Henry Cavill as Superman. Any of the qualms I have had with the Superman character uh, that he has played, it has always been about writing and direction and not about performance. I do think he is quite good at playing this role and, and it fits in pretty perfectly. What are your thoughts on Cavill? Yeah, I, I think that um, for any, any um, criticism we can have of the DC universe involving Superman... I don't think there's any criticism for, like you said, how Henry Cavill has played the character. Um, and I I think from the very first time we saw his character, I still remember um, the IMAX trailer for the first mm. end movie uh, yeah. with him in it. And it just felt like, like I remember watching this being like, that's what Superman looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he has definitely filled those shoes. 
Yeah, I remember seeing him in Immortals, which came out shortly after it was announced that he was going to be the one, the Superman. And I'm like, hey, this is a great movie to see. Does Henry Cavill have enough to carry this role? And after seeing him in Immortals, I was easily convinced that, hey, he can do it. And I don't think um, that has changed in that in that sense. And even though he's been, been in that role technically quite a while, um, he it, it doesn't appear like he's really aged heavily to the point where um, he can't still play it. And, you know, still mm-hmm. look reasonably. I mean, that's one thing with Superman. It's like James Bond is allowed to age. <laughs> Superman, not not quite as much. Um, so I think he still fits from that standpoint as well. So we're going to have Henry Cavill back in, as Superman. And our last uh, DC update, um, this is really not a surprise, uh, but the next Joker movie, Fully Ado, um, will not be part of the larger DC universe that James Gunn is creating. This one is going to remain outside. Um, not a surprise because the first one was intentionally not inside anything that DC was doing. Um, I think that's one of my main criticisms of it is that they would, it wasn't, uh, but this one will also not be. And, um, this one's going to come out in uh, 2024, starring, of course, Joaquin Phoenix reprising his role as Joker, as well as Lady Gaga in this one. Reportedly, it's going to be kind of a musical, which is, uh, I, I don't know what to think about that. Um, <laughs> but it's not going to be part of the larger DC universe. Uh, what do you make of that possibility and um also the idea that they're not entirely sure if a batman sequel written by matt reeves would also not be part of this dc they're not 100 percent sure yet on that front what do you make of of the joker yeah, first and then the, um joker i'm i think it was expected this would be the case yeah that's not very surprising um i really I like the tone in the universe of Joker. So I'm wondering if having a second movie in it will give it a little more weight or a little more substance substance mm-hmm. as a thing. Um, as far as Batman goes, I can see it going either way. The Batman um, being a part or not being a part. I guess it, it really depends on how much, um, of that humor element um, slash snarky element like James Gunn brings into this vision he has for DC because the Batman was definitely not that kind of movie. Yeah. Um, so does it fit tonally? And that's the big, like one of the big talking points in making this decision was developing mm-hmm. by tone Yeah. Um, around the characters. So I could see it being too a bridge too far for them to bring that in. I mean, I don't necessarily think he should be responsible or required to do that because it's not his thing. Yeah. You know, and it's more the fault of DC for not figuring out what they were doing. Yeah. For so long that they have this issue now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really interesting because, they already have Matt Reeves signed up to to do the new Batman movie, so obviously that's not going to come under 
gun. Um, but I think this is the potential of where this could go wrong. This is what I was talking about. Uh, the idea that where, how can this go wrong? This, this can go wrong if they end up with too many side projects that are not under the actual framework. Like say uh, Joker Folio do does really well and they want to create another movie. So now you've got this, this ongoing series with the Joker that isn't involved in this. If the Batman still does well, like how do you integrate? Like if Matt Reeves goes down in his vision with a second movie, now you've got two movies with a similar tone and feel that might be a different direction than where James Gunn is going. So now what do you do with Batman? Do, can you bring him in or does this still have to be out on the side? So you you could, in theory, end up with multiple large character side series going on that are outside of what James Gunn is trying to create. Or they have to shoehorn something in in a way that obviously doesn't fit super well. And... I think that's where it could potentially go bad. Um, especially with the fact that Reeves hasn't even turned in a script for the new Batman movie. I would be, if it were me, I'd be looking to get that under James Gunn as, as quickly as possible and, mm -hmm. and tell Matt Reeves, he's got to work with James Gunn on this. Uh, it doesn't look like that's where it's at at the moment, but um, that would certainly be a take that I would, I would be looking to do because the more you can get under the same umbrella as soon as possible, the more you should do it. But the fact that DC has been so fractured and terrible is why it's going to be hard to do that initially. And I think that's where it could go wrong is that it's just too fractured to really bring under um, one roof quickly enough. Uh, anything else on that? I think we're 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 both in agreement on pretty much everything there. Yeah. Um. There's there's a little. Uh, I think there's reason for optimism, but obviously cautious optimism. For sure. The word. So. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our discussion, and tonight we talk about uh, least appreciated aspects of movies, uh, and this is basically things that if you just go and you're just watching a movie, the average moviegoer, we go into the theaters. We sit down, we watch the movie, we come out, we decide whether we liked it or we didn't like it. Um, maybe we have a reasons why, maybe we don't. Um, but we kind of leave it at that. Um, and But there's so many nitty gritty or details or things uh, over here that affect whether a movie is good, whether a movie is bad, whether we like it, don't like it, uh, that oftentimes get overlooked unless we specifically pay attention to. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about... Uh, that aspect of movies. And so uh, Rob and I will go back and forth on uh, some of the least appreciated aspects of movies uh, that maybe you should think about paying more attention to. Uh, so Rob, I'll let you go first. What's what's an underappreciated aspect of movies? So the thing that immediately jumped to my mind um, as far as something that some people might not notice right away, or maybe they do notice, but they don't really know how to frame what they've seen uh, in conversation would be um, how a movie chooses its color palette and what mm -hmm. it means in telling the story. Yeah. Uh, I think if you want to get really basic and give an example that people can really relate to, it would be something like the matrix. Mm -hmm. Although the matrix <laughs> is actually not as green as you think it was. <laughs> yeah, we did a story on that a while back. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that is definitely one because I think, 
almost anyone who has seen the matrix if you ask them what color would you associate with the movie the matrix they would say green mm-hmm. um another one that i think of is unbreakable yeah and the color purple and the use of the color purple in that movie and what it symbolizes not just there mm-hmm. because it's there for a reason yeah uh, and then you can even go down to a more uh, macro level and look at and i've seen several of these online of where people will post like a gradient of the entire movie from start to finish with just the different colors that are used in the scenes and then you can see this like overall picture of these are the like warmths and depths of the colors that they mm-hmm. used in this movie and i it really can tell part of the story yeah. um based on what kind of color you use another one that i i uh, jumps to mind immediately as i'm thinking about this um the book of eli mm. so like um tan brown and black that's pretty much the only color you have in the movie but there's a reason for it um i think sometimes people see a movie and they're like oh it's weird that they're doing this yeah. um shooting it this way but there's usually a reason for why the color palette is chosen mm-hmm. um colors they highlight and what colors they minimize um obviously black and white is its own completely own thing yeah that using light and shadow mm-hmm. um but the thing that i i pay attention to and i think some people might not necessarily um think about that when they go to see a movie for the first time yeah because and this was on my list too but color palette really it helps determine your mood how you're feeling about that scene. It helps to set what you're supposed to be feeling and, 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 and how you're supposed to be reacting. The two that kind of came to mind for me was uh, 300 with the really heavy duty sepia uh, over top of everything. And it had a really stylized feel, which was designed to kind of create that comic book, which is um, this uh, 300 was originally a graphic novel. So to kind of create that kind of look um, and, and make it more stylized. And the other one was um, um, Mad Max Fury Road mm. uh, that had like the saturation on the colors turned way, way up. Uh, so everything just popped. All the colors popped uh, in a way that you don't see a lot in movies. And it really, because the colors were, were heavily orange uh, in the orange toned family, it created a sense of danger a sense of excitement a sense of action uh that you would see in that um so it it really color palette does make a big difference um one for me and i i thought of this just through my work on um uh, gladiator is costume design costume design is highly underrated um because it really is especially um if you're dealing with a period piece movie how effective the costuming is really, really makes a difference into the believability of, of the movie. Like, mm-hmm. are you in this time frame? Does this look and feel like the time frame you're supposed to be in? Um, and the same thing with um, the same thing with futuristic movies or just your average movie. Like, what colors do they put the characters in? Um, how do they have them dressed? How their dress says a lot about them. I think about uh, the Dark Knight, how they make a special point of making the fact that the Joker's clothes tell nothing about him. Mm-hmm. You know, he has custom clothes with no labels. 
that says something about his character, um, how he dresses, um, what he chooses to wear. Those type of things all affect how a character is perceived and, and makes a huge difference. And all of that is decisions made by the costume designer um, in conjunction with like director and creative director as to what they're going for. Uh, but costume design is a very underrated aspect of movies. And yeah, it calls for a lot of creativity from the people who are involved in the process because uh, you think about a movie like or movie series like Pirates of the Caribbean, mm-hmm. uh, dress them like pirates. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to find a way to dress them like pirates in a way that each of the main characters in that series are going to have their own look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But it's still going to be coherent within the story you're telling. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, an art really um that is not paid a lot of attention to or even like the weight that was placed on like the costume designer in the lord of the rings series because there's so many details about these characters and everyone's waiting to see what are they going to look like in real life and you've seen it when it when it hasn't gone well in other movies where the look isn't quite right or people don't like the look of the character how they don't feel like it's accurate how it makes a big difference and so getting the look right of a character that's well known or a character that is uh, from a book that is well liked is not as easy as you would think yeah um something that pops to my mind when you say that is like um elizabeth salander from um Mm. the girl dragon tattoo yeah because in the books you have this very vivid picture of who this person is Mm mm-hmm so it's like it's makeup, it's costume, it's all these things that yeah. have to come together for that to be realized on screen and in an effective way that people will relate to. Yeah. What else you got? Um, obviously, I'm a huge music person, so I think mm-hmm. of like the cues. Um, yeah. Not necessarily like the big epic soaring um, soundtrack numbers, but like if they bring a piece of a song back or um, if there's like a uh, violin sting in the background of a scene coming up, mm-hmm. obviously a lot um, and uh, suspenseful movies use it. I was uh, just watching a movie, a horror movie last night and found the musical choices interesting. I'm not sure if I love them or not. We'll, we'll get to that movie in the watch list. <laughs> um, it's a classic one. Um, but yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by when does a movie use music? When does it choose to be silent? And music is often used, I would say more than maybe even more than visuals. Music is used to make you feel the emotion that the people making the movie want you to feel. Yeah. Because there's a lot that music can do without having any words um, in, in conjunction with the visual sequence going on that can make you feel a certain way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the, the key is when to be subtle and when to stand out. Um, sometimes in a movie, you want the soundtrack to kind of, and the musical cues to kind of fade into the background uh, where you're not noticing them. You're just kind of, it's kind of leading you along without being overt and there's sometimes where you want it to be in your face and you want it you want it to show you um i'm thinking of inception for example about how so much rested on 
the ability of the seat, the music to handle what was happening. And, and you wanted it to be more forefront than that. Mm-hmm. And that but, seems uh, to be kind of a, yeah. that's, that's a hallmark of um, Christopher Nolan in general, because sure. and it are very much the same. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even like in inception, the use of the French song as a recurring musical cue uh, throughout the movie, like that idea of bringing it back and, and repeating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will give you, um, I'll give you one more here. How about the framing? Mm. Framing is something that often we don't pay attention to. Um, and, it, and framing is how you set up a shot with the camera. What is in the field of vision for the camera? Um, this is often an underrated aspect. Where is, if you're doing a character, uh, where is the character placed in the screen? Uh, this is obviously most noted when you have um, very highly visual directors. Um, I was thinking, uh, and now I'm blanking out. Who am I talking about? You know who I'm talking about. Centered uh, symmetry, and I'm blanking out on his name. Uh, Wes Anderson? Wes Anderson, thank you. It was not coming to me for some unknown reason. <laughs> Wes Anderson is known for this because his his framing is very, very symmetrical. And so everything looks very different than it does in any other film. But things like when you're doing a um, a dialogue scene, where are the characters? Are they off to the left side? Are they off to the right side? What is the director trying to draw your attention onto? And a lot of that is done with framing. Is the shot wide and you're seeing the person's whole body? Is Is, you know, is the shot from what angle is it being shot at? Uh, all of those things are are ways the director is trying to show you something and trying to tell you something. I think too one of the um, ways this works is like if you have a dual shot where you have two people in the same frame, maybe one's behind the other, and you see a shift in perspective where it's it one person's kind of faded in the background while the other person's talking, and then the camera focus shifts back and forth that's that's all set up through framing and when you do it differently um it makes it makes the story tell things differently and sometimes you can literally see the director is trying to move you to a specific thing by how he frames a shot there's several moments of that in in like blade runner 2040 49 where the director because of how he's framing a shot is literally trying to tell you something yeah, framing is also going to tell you um, how big or small the yes. world movie is. And that's something that can go really wrong <laughs> in a movie. If you're trying to make a big epic movie, um, there's there are some movies that feel like they're TV shows. And I think that a lot of the reason behind that is how it was framed. Um what do you actually see in the background? Um, what kind of set design is there? Is there like there, there's a different feel to a well-made movie. Like it, it yeah. feels big. Um, and the, the, one of the fascinating things now is that um, with some of these shows that are coming out, um, like Showtime shows, HBO shows, mm-hmm. Disney shows, some of the um, TV shows are starting to feel like movies. Yeah, and that's a lot. There's a lot of framing involved in that. Yeah, 
because obviously you're not operating under the same kind of budget as you are with a major blockbuster movie. So you've got to do a lot of work to make that kind of feel come across on the screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just, it makes such a difference. There's, and you can tell on certain movies where, where it comes off. There's, there was a joke that, you know, the extended edition of Dune is going to be like just 15 beautifully crafted shots of ships taking off and landing. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's all framing like this big wide shot of this massive vehicle coming down. It becomes part of the, a part of the outlook of the movie, part of how, how you experience it. And so much of that has to do with, um, and this is behind the scenes stuff. They have to, sometimes it's storyboarded. Sometimes you, you get, um, a sense of where the director wins go. Another really great framer is uh, M. Night Shyamalan. You were talking about Unbreakable. Mm-hmm. There's some really, really interesting framing in Unbreakable. Yes, absolutely. Um, some of the framing actually leads to the whole belief of who this character is. Mm-hmm. Um, it can It can bring you into a place where you start to believe something about um the movie that you're watching mm-hmm. is the this is why i mean this is the whole reason for the podcast this is, this is why movies are so fascinating and exciting to both of us i think is there's so many so many aspects of yeah. movie making that go into a movie it's not it's not as black and white as is this good or bad there's yeah. just so much involved um it's the reason why i've been able to talk about it for <laughs> uh, like 150 hours at this point um <laughs> because there's always something different to, to see mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's always so many aspects involved um and so next time you watch a movie pick one of these and and focus on it pick color you know start noticing color palette or pick um uh, your thoughts about how the how it was costumed or um how it was framed and just pay attention to that. I think you'll have a very different experience when you watch the movie and you'll see things that you didn't see, even in some of your favorite movies, uh, you'll, you'll pick up on stuff that you didn't pick up on before. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's move on to our watch list. These are movies we've watched over the past week and what we thought about them. Rob, what'd you watch? Um, So I've been teasing it a couple of times here, um, but I've been obviously going through, a list that was made for me by my best friend of four movies to watch during the month of October. And last night, for the very first time in my life, I watched Stanley Kubrick's movie, The Shining. Okay. All right. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I found uh, his musical choice choices, some of them very interesting in this movie because it's very um, high strings, very intense, um, a lot of very like overt, deliberate, emotional like kind of trying to keep you on the edge of your seat or uncomfortable Mm -hmm. uh, musical sounds going on in this movie it actually was very analogous to me to how a lot of 2001 space odyssey Mm -hmm. felt also Mm -hmm. his movie yeah um so obviously there's something there with how he chooses to make movies i've always been um wondering what this movie would be like because i know stephen king who wrote the book does not like this movie Mm. Um, I can after after having read the book and seen the movie now, I can understand where that comes from because 
there is a lot in the book that is not in the movie. And obviously that's going to be true about any big book that's gets made into a movie. But in my opinion, there's a lot in the book that's useful to understanding the characters in the movie that is not in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think where he had a, a lot of issue with it, like um, in the movie, the char- Jack Nicholson's um, character kind of goes from like perfectly fine to crazy. Like there's not really a lot of development there or explanation of why other than he's isolated. So he goes crazy. Whereas in the book, there's a whole bunch of specific events that happen that drive him to that place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then things go haywire from there. Um, but I, you talked about framing and I, I think that, um, Stanley Kubrick, as much as I might think he goes over the top sometimes, and I'm not necessarily like his biggest fan, I do think that he, th- this is obviously something he excels at. Yeah. Uh, he is able to make you become a part of the world in a way that keeps you engaged. Um, the one scene I'm thinking of specifically in this aspect is when Danny, the little boy, is riding around in his tricycle, which is like a really famous scene. Even if you haven't seen The Shining, you've probably seen the kid riding around in a tricycle on the orange and red and black carpet. Um, and the way he follows that, like you're basically riding with him, um, really sets the tone for being like in the kid's shoes and why what happens is so scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I've said uh, before that I think there are a lot of bad horror movies and a lot of average horror movies and very few really good horror movies and despite some of my qualms with um some of the choices made i would say that the shining is a classic for a reason i do think it is one of the better horror movies i've seen um so i was happy to be able to actually finally see it um just a brief mention of a couple others i saw over the last week i watched the babadook which came out in 2014 Hmm. um that's a I, I like that. It was a stylish, more updated, creepy story about a mom and her son and, and an imaginary monster who comes to live in their house. Hmm. Um, it's definitely, like I said, creepy is the right word <laughs> for it. Um, let's see. What else did I watch this week? There was a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm watching something scary every day. Um, so I also watched um, Poltergeist. Um, mm. which I don't think I've ever seen um, all the way through either. Um, 1982, I believe, came out. Um, that one was more of a campy kind of horror movie, although there were some kind of scary elements in it. It was rated PG, but bear in mind it was PG before PG-13 existed. So um, it's probably like a PG plus if you want to think about it that way. Yeah. Uh, but I will be um, releasing like an article with a list of all these movies that I watched over the month, the end of the month. Um, so if you're interested in checking out horror movies, I will have a list of that for you in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. We look forward to that. Um, for me, I watched three movies. The last one being a kinda, which I'll explain <laughs> in a moment. Um, so the first one I watched was true lies. Uh, this is 19, I think 1994 Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, and it's, it's kind of an interesting take on the spy film genre because um, obviously Arnold Schwarzenegger is, you know, spy by night, 
you know, boring businessman by day. Like he, he basically lies to his family that he has a boring day job. Um, but his marriage is not going well. His marriage to Jamie Lee Curtis is not going well. Um, when she accidentally, when she gets hit on by a, a guy who is pretending to be a spy and, um, wants to take her on this adventure and Arnold Schwarzenegger finds out about it and then basically um pretend puts her on a pretend mission where she's supposed to basically uh go in and plant a bug on some like businessman somewhere and it turns out like it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and then they get caught up in the whole whole you know, everything goes wrong and, you know, all this type of stuff. But it's really interesting from the standpoint of it's a little bit of a twist on the spy film genre, but it's very, very mm. 90s action. It's very, very 90s action. Um, all of all of the requisite blowing stuff up, um, the um, not really that serious, not really attempting to make it that believable, um, all the stuff that was very characteristic of those uh, of that genre of film was in there. Uh, of course, Arnold himself uh, was classic Arnold. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's fun, entertaining. I also watched uh, another movie from 1999, October Sky, um, just because I like it. It's just a really good movie. And it's, a, it's about a boy from West Virginia in a coal mining town who decides he wants to build a rocket after uh, getting to see Sputnik. And um it's the it's a battle between a father and a son it's the battle for you know how do you do something when everyone's making fun of you and uh when you have no resources and and just uh the determination to accomplish something and it's based on a true story and so it's just a really really good film uh so my last one is i got to see amsterdam in theaters kind of <laughs> i I did something I've never done before. I had a window of time, which, ooh, I can go see a movie. And I miscalculated time. Oh. I miscalculated time. I thought I had enough time to watch this movie. And so I go to the theater. I'm sitting there in the movie. The movie is like 10 minutes in. And I look down at my watch. I'm like, wait a second. I did not calculate time right. This movie is going to be over a half hour after I have to be somewhere else. <laughs> I'm sitting there in the theater of like, now what do I do? Like, I've never done this before. I've uh -huh. never screwed up like the basics of time math to the point where <laughs> I had to literally leave a theater before a movie was done. Not because I hated it, not because it was stupid or I'd seen it or, or there was some emergency, because I miscalculated time. So I saw three quarters of Amsterdam. <laughs> so I don't even know how, what I'm supposed to say about this movie because I don't know how it ended. Yeah. Um, all I know is like, it was, it was well, what I saw was well done a little bit slow paced, uh, but the characters were really interesting. And. Um, so I've, I've had, yeah. had a similar experience a couple of times. Um, actually Dune and IMAX being one of those times yeah. um, where I underestimate how tired I actually am <laughs> and I will go to a late movie. This is probably happened three times that I can think of, but I'll go to a late movie and like halfway through, I'll be like, I'd honestly like, I, I like this movie, but I'd honestly rather be asleep. 
Um, and when it came to Dune, the main issue was that to get home was a 45 minute drive still. And I was already tired. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I should probably go home, even though this looks awesome. And I've loved it so far. Um, I was thankful that HBO Max had it very soon. So I was able to watch it not soon uh, after it came out. But um, I try and not go to like uh, 11 o'clock showings now unless unless it's like opening night or something i'm really excited about and i know i'm gonna be engaged the whole time yeah because i get i it's definitely like couch mode because uh the way they're these recliners are in theaters now it can be you get very comfortable and i know that when i'm sitting on my couch sometimes watching movies i like fall asleep <laughs> uh, and so it can be that way in the theater too sometimes if i'm tired enough and i'm often yeah. tired enough because of you know life life which is what happened to me because I just have not had good windows to be able to go see movies. So I was like so excited I was going to go get to see this. And yeah. So I don't know if and when I'll get to see the end of that movie. Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. But <laughs> who knows? All right. Uh, you got anything else, Rob? I don't. Uh, other than make sure you watch the whole movie if you're going to watch a movie. Yeah, try to try to do that. It it goes better that way. Um, until next time, uh, thank you for checking out the Film for Fans podcast, and make sure you check out filmforfans.com. Uh, Rob's article on horror movies will be out soon. My article on uh, the re um, revisiting of Gladiator will be out soon, and we have a bunch of other content on there. So check us out, filmforfans.com, and tell your friends about the podcast. Until next time, enjoy the movies.